Welcome everyone. I think we're going to get started. Uh, people have uh, trickled in online and trickled in in person. It's great to see a whole bunch of new faces here. So maybe afterwards we can have a quick intro of everyone and where you're from. Um, my name is Don Rodriguez Ward, and I co-facilitate this uh, the GES Center's weekly colloquium seminar uh, with Jen Baltzigar. And we are live, and we are li live in person and live virtually. Um, and we're very excited about having our speaker, Dr. Curry, here today. But before I give, I pass on the mic. I just wanted to uh, give a few announcements and updates, and also leave the floor for any other updates or announcements that anyone wants to share. And so I, I'm just going to talk about the GDS minor. I have two announcements, uh, and then I'll, I'll stop talking. Um, just a reminder, this Friday, uh, the Genetic Engineering Society Center will have a Zoom Q&A for any, any student, master, PhD in the natural, social, sciences, or humanities that's interested in our GEF minor fellowship, uh, which will start in the fall of next year, and we will have the preferred application deadline on March 15th. So please join Fred the co-director of the GBS Center and myself this Friday, 5 p.m. if you're interested, or please send me an email if you'd like more information about the fellowship. Um, and so I just wanted to remind people that, that we have that going on. And also, uh, great news. So Jennifer Kuzma, the other co-director of the GBS Center and one of our Ag BioFuse uh, cohort students, Andrew Hardwick, uh, have a new uh, new publication that came out, and I just learned of it this morning. Thanks, Patty, for uh, putting together the slide. So you'll see a link for it in our newsletter. So congratulations to Jennifer and Andrew and, and others that are on there. I have to deal with their premiere, uh, their NSF premiere uh, program. And we also have another one that I'm going to actually let Tara, uh, if you want to talk, uh, give a quick update and a save the date for students and faculty about something that you are um, helping, that you are heading. Yeah, Yay. thanks. Um, yeah, so save the date, it's uh, Tuesday, May 21st. We are organizing a uh, summit or a workshop on the sustainable use of novel agricultural technologies in plant science building here on campus. Um, I am co-leading this effort with Drs. Midland Yang and Katie Sanders. Um, and the whole purpose of, and we're also having many of, of us here from GES also help organize this, including Dawn and Katie Barnhill and Patty and Sharon. So this is a, a GES co-sponsored event, as well as um, work that is being leveraged by the USDA NIFA grant that I lead together with Jennifer Kuzma. So we're putting on lots of hats for this event. It is to understand different stakeholder perspectives on novel agri-food technologies, particularly uh, genetic engineering, gene editing, the use of alternative proteins, cellular-based meats, nanotechnologies, and their role in securing sustainable food and ag systems going forward. So really unpacking different stakeholder perceptions on what sustainability means and the role of these new technologies. So it's a free event, lunch and coffee and ice cream will be provided. Um, so you're welcome to come. <laughs> so we'd love to have you. There will also be a separate call for posters, particularly for students and postdocs. And if you're interested in showcasing some of your work, we'd love to have you showcase your work. Um, 
So yeah, more information will maybe come out through our GES newsletter. So yeah, I, and I will send out also guide by a few students and other students that are interested in the poster session. We also have some available positions for our uh, focus groups, our breakout uh, group sessions, having some moderators. So if you're interested in moderating some of those sessions with us, um, do come see me. And so I won't take up any more of your time. Um, just a reminder that next week we are virtual uh, only. And so we'll have Luisa Raiz Castro from the University of Southern California talking about transgenic mosquitoes in Brazil. And then after that, we won't have a colloquium because it'll be spring break. So we're very excited to be in person and to meet with Dr. Curry. For those of you that signed up, we have our lunch uh, from um, an hour from one to two afterwards. So please stay in this room. We'll be in this room for the lunch. And I'm going to ask uh, Asa Budnick, one of our uh, Ag Biofuse cohort members, to introduce Dr. Curry, and we'll get started. Hello, everyone. I'd like us all to give a very warm welcome to Dr. Helen Ann Curry. Dr. Curry is a professor of the history of technology in the School of History and Sociology at Georgia Tech. And her work focuses on the history of science and technology, especially as it relates to agricultural systems. Uh, she is the PI of the University of Cambridge project from the collection to cultivation which is a University of Cambridge project to uncover untold stories on modern agricultural brands. Dr. Curry is also the author of Endangered Maze and Evolution Made to Order, and I'm sure we will all enjoy our conversations with her today. Thank you. Thanks very much for that introduction, um, and thanks to all who've um, made this uh, visit enjoyable so far, and we will be bring to the conversations yet to come as well. So, um, although I do have a background in uh, the history of genetic engineering, ostensibly um, sort of central to the, the programming here, uh, what I'm going to talk about today is work that comes from an ongoing project uh, thinking about the history of the conservation of crop diversity. So hundred and more years of collecting and preserving genetically distinct varieties of agriculture. This work is generally driven by the idea that such varieties are in danger of disappearing and yet also potentially possess traits that we might wanna have and maintain in the future. So many people who are familiar with this idea of the need to concern crop diversity connect it to, oh, sorry. Apologies. That's perfect. Thank you. Okay. Right, so many people who are um, familiar uh, with the idea of the need to conserve crop diversity connected to institutions like this one, the small particle seed vault, and uh, perhaps seed banks more generally. There are, according to the FAO, about 1,700 seed banks worldwide. Uh, but it's important to recognize that these are not the only strategy for conserving crop diversity. They predominate uh, in um, uh, efforts today, but um, uh, 
there is a wider landscape of diversity strategies, some of which I'll talk about today. So in my 2002 book on the history of crop conservation, I trace this history of crop diversity conservation through the example of maize. So maize, uh, in many ways, was central in determining the overall trajectory of change in conservation practices. Uh, at least that's the case that I make in the book, and kind of take it or leave it, assess for yourself. Um, now, one of the key things that really changed for me as I wrote this book uh, was coming to the understanding that conservation is best understood as being about changing scientific views of people rather than changing views about plants. Uh, so to, to explain what I mean by this, there have been other attempts to tell this general history of crop conservation. And I think they've, they've taken, you know, tended to take one of three strategies, or they've taken one of three strategies. Uh, the first is thinking about changing interest in biodiversity. So genes, species, ecosystems, understanding the conservation of crop genetic resources as fitting into that. Uh, they, in some cases, discuss changing agro-food orders. So thinking about imperial interests in novel plant materials, how this transformed in eras more dominated by state and industrial management of crop diversity. Uh, or they think about the characterization of genetic diversity in different ways. So thinking about what it means to describe something in terms of genetic resources versus thinking of it as providing ecosystem services, right? Those concepts give rise to different systems of conservation. Now, all of these different strategies for understanding this history center on crops, on why crop diversity is valued by particular people at particular times. And it's especially focused on how scientists uh, have viewed plants. And it's my, my view that the changing assessment of plants is in fact secondary in understanding this history of conservation. And what really has shaped conservation of crop diversity when it has taken place, how it has taken place, has been about how people have viewed other people, and especially about how scientists have viewed farmers. So today I'm just gonna illustrate this by talking about an important transition in conservation that took place in the 1980s and 1990s especially, which is the rise of in-situ conservation. Now, as I'm sure many here in this group realize, sorry, I skipped the slides, I apologize for that. As many uh, uh, people in, in this room realize, in situ conservation refers to saving something in its native place. Ex situ refers to offsite conservation. So the difference between a nature reserve, in situ, and a botanical garden. Uh, in conserving crop diversity, ex situ uh, typically means saving something in its seed bank or another germplasm collection. Whereas in situ means that farmers or gardeners are conserving diversity by continuing to grow diversity. Now, as is going to become clear in my talk, various different disciplinary outlooks were key to a transition in which in-situ conservation came to some prominence uh, in genetic resources conservation. And those disciplinary outlooks were ethnobotany and agroecology, on the one hand, and sociology and anthropology focused on agricultural systems. A key change in conservation practices, which can be linked back to these disciplinary perspectives, came from researchers increasingly seeing peasant, campesino, or indigenous farmers as knowledgeable decision makers rather than passive recipients of importative science. And as I'll explain, this shift changed a longstanding underlying narrative 
about the endangerment of cross diversity. There'll be four parts to the talk, and I'll, I'll move through these. Let me start with genetic erosion as a global concern. So, concern about the loss of crop diversity dates um, at least back to the 1890s, and it uh, its emergence really followed very close on the heels of intensified interest in plant improvement. This time period. In the late 19th century, states started investing in agricultural research and professional researchers, whether public or private, devoted more attention to tasks like hybridization and pure line breeding, other methods, in an attempt to create better crop varieties. Better crop varieties. Uh, and this work received a, a new boost from the science of genetics as it developed and emerged around the, the uh, 1900s and the years thereafter. So amidst a flurry of breeding activity in the early 20th century, there was, well, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was an immediate recognition that the flip side of creating improved varieties for farmers would be the loss of farmers' varieties, also sometimes referred to today as land races. Uh, it seemed to be obvious breeders' varieties would perform better, and therefore farmers would prefer them. Uh, and as a result, then locally adapted lines existing previously would go out of circulation. Now, most uh, agricultural scientists at the time uh, celebrated this as an improvement in agricultural practices, but some saw it as a problem. So what if those lines that were going out of circulation had useful qualities? If no farmers were growing them, they would disappear. Shouldn't they be collected, saved? Uh, and and um, if it was possible to make sure that that happened, then breeders would be able to use those lines in the future. So concerns about this transition in farmers' variety and the need to do something about it were voiced in the 1890s, 1910s, 1930s. But not much was accomplished, especially at any sort of scale. Um, these decades did see quite a lot of attention to collecting crop diversity as a resource for agricultural development, including imperial agricultural development in many different places. Collecting missions typically targeted poorer farmers, subsistence agriculturalists, and especially indigenous peoples. Basically, anyone who was thought to conceive traditional varieties with both people and crops often imagined as static, timeless, unchanging, as opposed to the modernizing farmers and the modern varieties that they were cultivating. But even though collecting received attention uh, in the first half of the 20th century, there was far less attention given to the tasks of long-term maintenance of these collections. And maintenance is, of course, essential to keeping seed collections alive. Most accounts uh, uh, pick out an important turning point uh, in this scenario in the 1960s. So this is a moment where one finally sees some activity in response to these repeated calls to conserve disappearing farmers' varieties, especially doing so at an international level. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations was a really important site for this shift to take place. Around uh, the mid-1960s, a group of plant scientists brought together at FAO sketched out a proposal for an international system to collect and conserve and use crop land races, farmers' varieties, and the wild relatives of crops. And you see some of those um, uh, at that time, all men gathered here um, to discuss this issue. Well, all men and, and one woman who's not uh, shown. Um, 
The proposal that this group put together finally sparked some responses, in fact, goading national and international agencies into some uh, early activity. So we might ask why this moment, right? Why the mid-1960s? Would it this um, um, or this initiative that have long been called for finally start to take shape? Well, the most important impetus was undoubtedly a sense that a worldwide agricultural revolution was on the horizon or indeed um, by some accounts already away. In 1968, just as the FAO proposal was released, the head of the U.S. Foreign Aid Agency declared the uh, existence of a green revolution in agricultural production. And in this, he referred to the development of high-yielding strains of wheat, especially Mexican-derived wheats uh, and, and rice, uh, being planted extensively in India, Pakistan, Turkey, Mexico, Thailand, and elsewhere. The semi-dwarf wheats and rice were celebrated as uh, inaugurating a, a kind of defeat of hunger. For advocates, they represented an advance of science, especially the advance of US-led science. It's worth mentioning that both of these narratives were misrepresentations of the facts on the ground, yet they were the dominant story in boardrooms and lecture theaters. Now, even as this celebration of the Green Revolution, for the reasons that I've just articulated, um, was taking place, there were those who uh, thought that the idea of, or found alarming, I should say, the idea of a crop designed to be widely adapted, grown in, in different ecological contexts, and which was specifically celebrated for spreading not just widely, but rapidly. As I've said, there was already this long-standing story, um, at this point, um, almost a century uh, in existence, about farmers' varieties gradually being displaced by breeders' varieties and the loss of genetically distinct types and their possible advantages. In the context of, this green, of the Green Revolution, this now became a story of mass transition, literally uh, the very same or very similar genetic lines traversing the globe. And this is the moment where we see the phrase genetic erosion uh, coined to capture a process of dramatic um, rapid transition in genetic diversity. Between 1967 and 1972, multiple iterations of a plan for what an international system to defend against genetic erosion might look like. And existing historical discussions of this have tended to highlight the differences. Who would be in charge of this system? What things would be priorities uh, for saving? conservation. But it's also really important to see what was the same in these proposals. And what was same, the same was the emphasis on conservation ex situ in full, uh, sorry, conservation ex situ in long-term This was not just because this seemed cheaper and more economical than devising in situ programs. It was also really linked to assumptions about the inevitability and the desirability of agricultural change. So at a moment when economic development programs that dispense new crop varieties were almost unquestioned in the United States, in Europe, among funders as positive interventions, in-situ conservation seemed to demand that some farmers would have to be deprived of the opportunity of benefiting from the best that modern science had to offer. So most scientists agreed with uh, the, this assessment by Otto Frankel, who was an internationally prominent advocate for the conservation of crop diversity, uh, when he noted that in-situ protection of locally adapted varieties, because it required the 
preservation of farming systems among rapid technological change was a quote, social impossibility as well as an economic one. Now, there were those who thought that uh, in situ or on farm conservation was also necessary. They usually did so because they thought that continued evolution of crops was particularly important. So, for example, you see here um, the botanist Hugh Wilkness, who urged in 1974 that areas that were home to crop diversity be placed off limits to economic development. So he considered the only hope for long-term success of conservation to be the preservation of designated areas, including what he described as, quote, the deliberate exclusion of agricultural improvements as represented by the Green Revolution and modern agricultural technology from those very places. Now, although they arrived at different conclusions, Iltis and Frankel and many of their colleagues based their ideas about the conservation of crop diversity on a shared assumption about an inevitable trajectory of agricultural change. This assumption was that varieties that were created by professional or private breeders as a result of state, sorry, by professional breeders as a result of state industry or philanthropic investment would replace farmers' varieties. It was not a question of whether this would happen, but when it would happen. And really, from their perspective, why should it be otherwise when, in their view, farmers stood only to gain from increased yields and therefore not greater income? So this was, I hardly need to point out, I think uh, um, here, this was a view from the global north, right? This is where these scientists were situated and the, the understanding that they had how agriculture So um, moving on here to think about crop diversity as a local resource. As I've said, in the 1970s, fueled by concerns about rapid agricultural change, linked especially to development in aid programs and new globalized crop varieties, this international system of uh, plant genetic resources conservation shape. And that uh, system was uh, centered on the needs of professional scientists, especially breeders, who were imagined to be the key users of this. It also focused initially on uh, global commodity crops. So wheat, rice, maize, or sorry, maize. Um, and this would be achieved through long-term storage facilities at national and agricultural, sorry, national and international agricultural research institutions like Erie, which you see here. Um, and this is obviously the, um, the umbrella organization, the International Board for Genetic Resources, um, which uh, oversaw the collections that were taking shape in, the, in, in different institutions. Now, it was not long before a critique of these institutions emerged. And that critique um, was in part that these institutions didn't serve all needs for crop diversity. Significant early critiques of crop conservation systems came from the world of alternative agriculture, specifically interest in organic agriculture. And these critiques associated big institutional seed banks like the ones at Simic or Erie, or the ones um, here in the United States, the, the seed bank in Fort Collins and elsewhere. It associated those big institutional seed banks with industrial agricultural systems and the scientists and industries that sustained it and therefore attempted to create alternative conservation systems that would be focused on providing resources at the local level 
in light of changes um, perceived to be underway. There were two additional intellectual currents that were essential to, to kind of adding to this emerging critique, which came from within or at least closer to the world of academic research. Uh, one of those domains was ethnobotany, the study of local knowledge about and uses of plant diversity. Uh, earlier in the 20th century, the model for ethnobotany had been one of outsider anthropologists investigating local knowledge, typically knowledge of indigenous peoples. That was a sort of in the process of some significant transformation, as I'll mention in a moment. Um, but I want to note the second field that was uh, important to these transitions, these developing critiques of seed banking, uh, and that was the, the world of agroecology. So this was the study of agricultural production as embedded within particular ecological settings or industries. In the 1960s and 70s, both of these fields were undergoing change, and that really matters uh, for my story. So ethnobotany was transitioning from a, a, a discipline that tended to reproduce local taxonomies, right? To understand the way local people categorized and um, used uh, the, the um, plants in their uh, local region to actually more consistently valorizing local knowledge, especially that of indigenous communities as knowledge that was rich, detailed, systematic, and in many ways able to compete with what had been set aside as modern science. Agroecology was moving from an ecosystems approach to agriculture to a more holistic appreciation of diverse agricultural systems, again, typically peasant and indigenous agricultural systems, as produced through the interactions of culture and environment, again, drawing on and producing rich systematic knowledge. And I'll add, importantly here, there was also an increasingly normative element of agroecological research. It was not just studying agricultural systems, but making a case that agricultural systems that were more sensitive to local ecology were better agricultural systems. A good example of how ethnobotany and this normative agroecology converged to create new models of crop conservation comes from the U.S. Southwest of Arizona, where a, a kind of new form of ex situ conservation, the community seed bank, took a definitive shape in the 1970s. So the idea of a community seed bank, of which there are many, many examples today in all sorts of farm and gardening communities, uh, is that ex situ conservation can be used to protect seeds of local or regional crop varieties, right? So things that might be adapted to a particular place and also at the same time, keep these available to and in circulation among local growers. So it's a kind of ex situ conservation that's conceived in order to directly foster in situ conservation. Uh, in Tucson, Arizona, the idea for a community seed bank emerged from some converging interests. On the one hand, there was a, an ethnobotanist who was rising to increasing prominence, a guy named Gary Nabhan, who was studying desert adaptive plants and cultivation systems and wanted to promote these as better for the region. And on the other hand, there was a staff of a local hunger relief charity that wanted to locate appropriate crops for Native American gardeners, but discovered that it was actually hard to locate seeds of the crops um, that they needed. So Nabhan, the ethnobotanist, teamed up with the hunger relief charity to help them locate Native American or indigenous Mexican farmers still cultivating crops. 
help them gather the seeds, cultivate these in what was called the conservancy garden, store them in a seed bank, and then also distribute them to growers. This started out, as you see here, as the Southwest Traditional Crop Conservancy Garden and Seed Bank, but was, but was soon renamed Native Seed Search. And there were many different goals to the Native Seed Search project. The most immediate aim was to support Native American farmers of the region, providing advice on seed storage, locating varieties no longer easily available within a particular reservation or community, making these and other varieties available to interested growers in the region, so beyond the Native communities, and ultimately a goal of keeping all of this diversity extant. By helping farmers, including through the ethnobotanical expeditions, uh, there was also an aspiration to find and save seeds of desert adaptive crops, and seeing this as being the route to enabling local food self-sufficiency security. Further, uh, uh, objective that kind of emerged over time um, was one in which the organization sought quote, to exemplify how regional seed banks can serve people, not just provide raw materials for esoteric genetic research. So the critique here uh, in this vision um, for seed banks uh, was explicit. Although professional plant collectors concerned about the loss of crop diversity had often targeted traditional or indigenous communities, the resulting collections ended up in state-run repositories that were inaccessible to those same communities. And so Native Seed Search positioned itself as providing something really quite different in terms of its seed bank conservation. Now, before I move on, I wanna point out something really important about the motivating uh, ideas at Native Seed Search. Because even as it critiqued the prevailing system of crop conservation in seed banks, um, it operated on much the same narrative. And that narrative was one of disappearing crops. They saw the salvage mission that was part of what they were doing as something that was essential. Not necessarily because of the influx of modern varieties alone, although that was part of it. They also saw that this loss of crop diversity was related to poverty, discrimination, loss of lands. Nonetheless, the organization, um, through its founding members and, and, and foundry um, kind of rhetorical stance, pointed to a looming crisis of extinction, one that would deprive local communities of resources that it would need for socially and ecologically sustainable future agriculture, right? So this extinction narrative is very much uh, the same and, and, and projecting kind of uh, uniform trajectory. Um, and that brings me to uh, the third section of my talk. Um, and this um, Local Seeds for Global Needs um, is meant to highlight thinking about how a mission like that of Native Seed Search based on serving local interests um, also became embraced as serving potentially wider international global needs for crop diversity conservation, right? How did local in-situ conservation come to be accepted as a means of achieving global conservation? I think it's pretty easy to see how in-situ conservation serves immediate communities. But to make the case that it could do more than that required actual intellectual and physical 
And it especially required revising this narrative that had dominated since the 1980s of farmers inevitably transitioning to breeder varieties uh, or of local varieties being inevitably displaced. So the final step in this story uh, is linked to the influence of social scientists on conservation and the incorporation of, of more diverse perspectives into the agricultural research especially that international conservation system whose launch in 1972, I just described a moment ago. So when international experts organized the crop conservation system, the international conservation system in the 1970s, as I described, there was a lot of debate about where the main seed bank facilities would be. In the end, they were chiefly associated with several international agricultural research centers, which happened to be first, the sites where Green Revolution varieties and technologies were pushed most aggressively. And second, places with large crop con uh, conservation collections for breeders already. These institutions, separate from their seed banks, were subject to critique from the 1970s onwards. They were seen not to serve the, the best interests of the poorest farmers. They were seen to represent interests of the global north, of traditional agribusinesses. They promoted economically and ecologically inappropriate technologies in some cases. Um, they were also seen to exacerbate inequality, potentially cause environmental degradation in the process of pursuing um, uh, agricultural, well, agri <laughs> extensions of the Green Revolution. So one problem with the, within these institutions seemed to be that the natural scientists, the breeders, the entomologists, the soil scientists that were employed at those institutions didn't necessarily understand or seek out, seek to understand farmers' needs or their social and economic contexts. So a few social scientists were initially hired to these institutions to try and redress this lack. In fact, the Rockefeller Foundation had a, had a program for funding social scientists, right? <laughs> as the CGI and the um, and, and that those uh, from the mid-1970s, those anthropologists and sociologists were brought on to work with farmers directly to understand their needs, characterize their social and cultural worlds, uh, to understand the spaces in which they operate. And one of the, the areas in which these social scientists devoted attention was better understanding farmers' preferences and crop varieties, their systems of seed exchange and crop improvement. From the perspective of the institutes, they needed to understand farmers' failure to adopt improved varieties. And studies in many different places in the 1980s and into the 1990s turned up similar findings. This finding, or the repeated finding, was that farmers didn't always consider breeders' varieties improvements. They had different ecological needs, different culinary needs, different ceremonial needs, and so on. In Mexico, for example, a sociologist's study of campesinos who had consistently failed to adopt breeders uh, supposedly better performing maize varieties, reported that farmers felt these were the wrong size, unpalatable, susceptible to local pests, and unproductive of the stalks that were needed for fodder production. So given responses like these, it shouldn't come as any surprise that efforts to collect and catalog farmers' varieties, motivated by the thought that these were disappearing, repeatedly discovered that farmers continued to cultivate the kinds of uh, or the varieties of maize and other crops that they had always cultivated. If there was a change, it was sometimes that they had added varieties rather than abandoning them. So this was true of, of some maize farmers in Mexico. It was true of wheat farmers in Turkey, rice growers in the Philippines. 
In the 1980s and 90s, social scientists made new efforts to understand local seed systems and patterns of seed choice among peasant and indigenous cultivators in different contexts. And their research consistently produced narratives of continuous experimentation with and exchange of seeds within and across communities, buttressed at the level of the individual farm. It also depicted these farmers as making rational choices among varieties in order to balance the need for security with the desire to improve their circumstances. Uh, and I'll add that um, a lot of this research also um, displays the changing politics of researchers in relation to their own community and national identities. There was a significant diversification of the research communities coming to participate um, in some of the work going on um, in the research institutions that I've been talking about. Now, what's most important for my narrative is recognizing that this new emerging picture produced by social scientists working in these agricultural contexts, um, the narrative that they produced did not correspond to the narrative of farmers automatically abandoning local crop varieties for breeders in fruit varieties. And this was the narrative of loss that had been in place for almost a century and which had been assumed by most to be universal. But now it seemed not to be. Increasingly, this research suggested that it might be possible to better serve these farmers and at the same time conserve crop diversity by working with them to develop local varieties to be improved in different ways. The idea of participatory plant breeding, for example, centered on the idea that farmers can be incorporated into breeding programs as collaborators to guide the decisions of professional breeders and receive training in maintaining and improving crop varieties on their own. So this is something that was seen to achieve the twin goals of developing better crops and simultaneously sustaining crop diversity by making farmers more likely to hang on to local types. Again, it's important to remember that state-led conservation of crop diversity was premised up to this point on the idea that crop improvement and genetic erosion had to inevitably go hand in hand. Uh, now, coming back to, to Mexico, in the 1990s, at least five different participatory plant breeding programs were in operation. These were run by different organizations, government, nonprofit, based in the U.S., also based in Mexico. They used different methods. So some brought farmers to the research station to choose lines for developments. Others carried out experiments in farmers' fields uh, or in community plots. Some involved actually uh, training farmers and breeding techniques. All of them shared a dual agenda. The agenda was to help, help farmers by making local varieties better, simultaneously ensuring that they would keep growing those varieties, right? So seeing improvement and conservation as going. And this depended on the idea coming, as I've suggested, from anthropology and agroecology and the five disciplines, and from researchers like those in Mexico who were working more directly in communities, uh, seeing that farmers, irrespective of formal education, uh, should be understand to know their own needs, know their own ecology, make sound decisions about what would be best on their farm. Since the 1990s, participatory plant breeding and farmer-centered on-farm crop diversity conservation programs have achieved a recognized place within the larger conservation agenda, even at the international level. They're sidelined uh, in favor of ex situ work um, still, um, but they are a fixture. And these programs certainly also encounter challenges and obstacles. Um, and in, in, um, in my book, I go into uh, greater detail in terms of thinking through what are the, some of the ways in which these programs kind of fell short of achieving the goals that they had and, and why, what are the obstacles to doing this work? 
Um, but all I want to emphasize here is the extent to which these have a recognized place in conservation action and to really underscore what a shift that is, um, what a shift it represents. In sum, what we see here in these um, participatory plant breeding programs and other in situ efforts are locally organized efforts to cultivate diverse crop varieties for use in particular communities, which have been linked to a global conservation agenda, right? So this is the work that happens to make a local act also meaningful <laughs> as a global Right, okay, so some short conclusions. Uh, the history of efforts to conserve crop diversity is, I argue, principally a history of ideas about people, not plants. It's specifically a history of how scientists have assessed the knowledge and the activities of farmers. I think this comes through in the examples I've shared here, at least I hope it has, um, in thinking about how new approaches to studying agriculture from ethnobotany, agroecology, anthropology, how these changed uh, conservation practices in agrobiodiversity. I think in some ways this lesson shouldn't be so surprising. Conserving a variety of a domesticated crop like wheat or maize or squash is different than conserving a wildflower or a tree. Right? Crops don't survive without people, without human care uh, from one generation to the next. So anyone wanting to conserve crop diversity needs rightly to have some ideas about farmers, about what they're doing now and what they're likely to be doing in the future. And yet, as we all know, for decades, the dominant investment in conserving crops has been attempt to attempt to devise ways of keeping seeds of diverse varieties alive without human care, right? To marginalize the study of farmers and what they do, believing this to be obvious, in favor of studies of, for example, seed longevity and storage. I think as observers of this system, regardless of what our disciplinary background is, we need to stop uh, and think. Um, or we need to stop thinking, I guess, about crop diversity <laughs> in the way that many scientists and states historically did, as though this is just a question of how scientists and governments understand and manage plants. And we need to stop thinking in that way so that we can see more clearly the ways in which this is a history of how scientists and governments have understood and managed or misunderstood and in some cases profoundly mismanaged human communities and people. Thank you. Um, okay, so we'll move into our discussion, and um, we see a lot of new places, so I'll just let everyone know how this normally works. Um, we have uh, quite a few people online, and we encourage everyone online to participate in the discussion as well. Um, if you are online um, and you would like to ask your question directly, use the raise your hand function, and I'll call on you. If you would like for me to read your question out aloud, just throw it in the chat and I can read it for you. Ask me. Um, short question, probably long answer. Can you? I'm. Thank you so much. It's really interesting. Uh, the I really liked your use of images in telling the story. And one of the things that struck me with those images is this very gendered-looking roles of some of these activities. So I'm not sure if it's in, within the scope of what you've looked at. But can you speak at all to the gender dynamics? It looks like you know we have the male scientists coming in in the '60s, and it looked like from the images that seed saving maybe more of a women's domain. I don't know enough to know, so I might be stepping in it, but yeah, could you speak to that at all? No, that's wonderful. And actually, I will I will say, um, when the book was reviewed in the major journal of the history of science, that was the, the 
the chief kind of critique of the book was that I don't think about gender <laughs> very much in the in the analyses. Um, so it's a wonderful question. It's a kind of glaring glaring gap, I feel. Um, um, I think one of the reasons why I didn't see it when I was writing is because I was studying scientists who themselves weren't seeing gender playing out in particular ways, at least for most of the earlier part of the history that I created. And so my own blindness repeats, I think, that. that. Um, but you're absolutely right to, um, to maybe point to in your question um, the way that research um, at, at many different levels, whether we're talking about what's going on at the International Agricultural Research Centers or within uh, national level institutions, have increasingly recognized uh, the central role of women in particular in seed keeping and seed exchange networks. Um, so I don't know that I've answered your question except to acknowledge that it's not, it's not here. I think if we're tracing the history of the science of crop conservation, it is absolutely another kind of transformative element, um, and which partly reflects women researchers coming into science to to sort of think about what's happening in kitchens. Um, I will give a plug for one of my PhD students um, at my previous institution in Cambridge um, is um, working on the history of chile pepper conservation in Mexico, um, and the really underlying theme of her. Uh, dissertation project is thinking about how scientists missed opportunities um, in conservation and really in understanding how chili diversity happens by never engaging with women in kitchens. Um, they're not just the seed savers, but they're like the primary cultivators, well, they're the primary cultivators and seed savers, but they're also the primary users and appreciators of diversity. Um, and so what has it meant for most of the, you know, the the history of this as an area of scientific research to have only in the past maybe decade and a half really started to engage with the keepers of Chile um, as conservation actors. So, so maybe I'll commend her work to you as a, as a go-to resource on that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for the very interesting talk. I thought uh, it must have been uh, a challenge which examples do you use? Uh, and that, you know, we sort of presented them in a very uh, nice way, but there's so much depth to those examples that we didn't have time to cover. Um, but there are two, two things that I wanted to raise. One is the participatory plant breeding. Uh, is, uh, it was very nice to see that it was a 2016 uh, example of that. Because you know it rose, the whole participatory science thing arose in the 1990s, and um, FAO was supporting it for a very long time, but then they kind of pulled back, and that's sort of so. My question there is, what what would be needed to make it become a stronger thread? So that's one question, and then following up on the question, it also seems that the politics is important. Because of the role that the Rockefeller Foundation played throughout much of this, until the critique of the Rockefeller Foundation really peaked, and allowing a lot of these other um, ideas to move in. So I'd like you to comment on the politics of the situation too. Yeah, thank you for both of those questions. 
So yeah, one of the things that I think made participatory plant breeding such a popular idea, like why it had this like burst of interest, as you as you very rightly out there, um, is because it it still required in most instances of how it developed, it was still thought to require like professional plant breeders and geneticists and agricultural scientists as skilled and knowledgeable. So it like valorized everybody's knowledge, right? So you were setting up research programs that had a defined role for breeders, even as it had a role for kind of farmers to bring their knowledge and expertise. But I think that also points to why there were challenges in it as a sustainable enterprise. Um, sustainable in the sense of like having the same continuing information. Um, one is because those groups don't necessarily have the same priorities, um, especially within institutions like you know the the sort of CG and other institutions. One of their hallmarks is scientific excellence, and you know that is. Um, uh, if the marker of scientific excellence is a published paper um, and a researcher, irrespective of their discipline, still needs to be getting a published paper out of it, um, coordinating that interest with farmers' needs as readers um, is still a challenge, right? Those are like different, those are just different, different ecologies, um, uh, different, different social worlds in need. Um, and so I think, Participatory plant breeding maybe didn't have quite the depth of thinking about some of those really practical challenges. Um, and maybe that's what would be needed to make it stronger or different. Um, a lot of the a lot of the things that you see as you know, you read the sort of reports over many years of people, you know, reporting back to the granting agency um, that they might have gotten funding from. It's inevitably about the dropout rate of farmers um, in participatory programs. Um, and I think that really is about like, if farmers are gonna give time to doing this kind of stuff, <laughs> they're gonna need um, um, kind of compensation and supports that are, aren't just the promise of potentially better varieties in the future. Um, yeah. And then with respect to politics, there are so many different ways to talk about the politics of this story. In this period, it's really thinking about like what was the agenda in the Cold War period, right? Um, and how did that transform in the 80s and 90s um, as uh, different kind of actors rose to prominence? Um, and yeah, I think the 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 um, Rockefeller Foundation. I don't know how familiar people will be with different elements of this story, but the Rockefeller Foundation. While World War II was still ongoing, launched its investments into Mexican agricultural research with the idea really of using Mexico as a kind of testing ground for, for developing a program of agricultural science, which it would then be able to model and reproduce in other contexts. And this is the story in many ways, in very short form of how the CGIAR came to be these major international research centers, which as we know, have been really influential in terms of shaping the kinds of agricultural science, like what gets researched, what crops get researched, um, what gets prioritized um, since the 1970s. Um, 
And the Rockefeller Foundation's agenda was one of sustaining U.S. security interests, um, at least in terms of its early investments. It was very closely aligned with um, U.S. Um, um, presidential administrations, um, U.S. Um, foreign aid agencies, and, and so on. Um, and so I think what we need to think about is when that vision comes to be critiqued, it's not just asking about you know, the Rockefeller Foundation in particular. It's a questioning of who gets to decide about agricultural science and what it looks like. And is it the alignment of uh, Amer American philanthropies, um, American uh, agribusinesses, and the U.S. government, or actually, are there are there a greater range of actors that we want to see kind of here here at the table? Um, I don't know if that gets to to some of the politics behind your question, um, but I think I think also obviously what happens in the 1970s is the flourishing of all sorts of critiques, um, not just critiques from the you know the, the sort of group of 77 in the UN, right? But kind of a, a association of um, developing countries um, calling for a greater voice at the table um, and kind of post-colonial um, reconfigurations uh, in Africa and Asia. Um, uh, but you also have political movements in the US. It's not, um, and, and well, and globally, um, I had the picture of the farmers, you know, the organic farmers uh, representing the sort of hippie dropout culture. And that's just like, you know, a sort of tiny, flicker of a moment in the kind of much wider scale of unrest in the 1970s, um, the student movement, civil rights, uh, you know, we can think of a whole range of ways in which authoritative <laughs> authoritative bodies come under new scrutiny and possibilities for, for questioning and producing new concepts in the forward. And so that's also part of the story of why agroecology comes about. It does. Uh, so yeah, there's politics all over this. Thank you for the question. Okay, I think we're at the end of the hour. So if everyone help me thank Helen. <laughs> that was very interesting. Um, there was an additional question in the chat. So maybe we can connect you uh, via email with that one. Um, if you've signed up for lunch, please hang around and, and wait for that. Um, otherwise, thank you to all the new people and you're always welcome back uh, anytime there's a new uh, presentation of interest. And next week we'll be online? Yes, only. So join us next week only. Thank you. Thank you.